Good afternoon, everyone. Glad you could join us this evening as we conclude the Sabbath together. How many of you were here last night? Okay, some of us. How many of you were here this morning? Okay, how many of you were here yesterday and this morning? Okay, so there are a number. So maybe we'll begin with a quick review. Last evening, we began by sharing a question together and and sort of thinking together about the, the motives, the root objectives for why we choose to be Christians. And we looked at Moses and we looked at Paul, both of whom states in Scripture that they would rather lose eternal life for the sake of those who are actually seeking their life in some cases and those who are idolatrous in rebellion in another case. And so we concluded that Christianity is far more than just to receive a reward. It's not just to gain something, but it's to become like someone. Because we looked at Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ was willing to be separated from the Father eternally for the salvation of the lost. And he didn't just say it, but he actually carried it out. He actually died the second death and drank of the wrath of God. And so we began to sort of get this clue. It seemed as though that something about the likeness of Jesus, viewing ourselves in the light of the cross, enables us to truly come to a better understanding of the proper foundations that we ought to have for our faith. And also, in case we, we miss this point, I don't want us to get the wrong impression that it's wrong to desire the blessings of God, because the Bible makes it clear that there are mansions in heaven, there is going to be a wedding feast of the Lamb, there is going to be a joyous reunion with our loved ones who have been taken from us. Those are all wonderful things that the Bible promises to us, and they are incentives laid out before those who would be faithful that they will receive if they endure unto the end. So this is not to diminish some of those things, but if that's our only reason to be a Christian, then it may be that our roots aren't deep enough. And that's where this morning's message comes in, where we looked at that time in the future, based on the illustration of the time of Jacob's trouble, where simply seeking a reward may actually not be reason enough to maintain the faith. There will come a time, we are told, where it seems as though those promises of God may actually not come into reality. And are we still going to be faithful during that time? That's the lesson from the time of Jacob's trouble. Are we going to be faithful despite the appearance that God himself has left us and has turned against us? That's the challenge of the time of Jacob's trouble. And that all goes back to the foundation of our faith. Why did we choose to become a Christian? What's the motive? It may have begun by, oh, I want to find the answers. I want to find the peace. I want to have joy. I want to have salvation. But if that's the only thing, 
perhaps we're missing the bigger, bigger lesson that God is seeking for us to learn as Christians on the road to uh, maturity. So that's sort of a review, and, and it sort of ties together some of the messages that we've had already. And this afternoon, we'll be taking this maybe a little bit further, um, and I'll be sharing with you some a study or some thoughts that stem from a question that I have uh, that perhaps you've asked yourself. So before we get into it any further, let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father in heaven, this afternoon, this evening, as we conclude this Sabbath day, we thank you for the blessing of the sacred hours that you've given to us, for the blessing of your word, for the blessing of your spirit, and indeed for the blessings you promise to us if we remain faithful. Lord, today we want to drill deeper than that. We want to be like Moses and Paul and Jacob and Jesus, who will be faithful even if there's no reward. So, Lord, today our prayer is that as we continue this hour to look at another story in the Bible, that your Spirit might lead us into a deeper understanding of ourselves, our motives, and your high calling for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's this question that I had? Have you ever wondered what happened when you see two individuals, same home, same family, same school, same church, same food, same chores, same upbringing, same everything, And I'm saying this is in a wholesome, solid Christian home. But one ends up in the church, and the other one ends up way outside. You know what I'm talking about? I think all of us could probably name some names. We're not going to do that today, of course. But you know individuals that you have a burden for, and we wonder... They had all of the privileges, all of the light, all of the advantages of Christianity, of knowing the truth growing up. Why did they end up the way they did? Why did they go way out in left field? And what's even more confusing is when some other person who went through the same or similar program or situation in life end up in a totally different place in life. Maybe remaining in the church. That's, that, that's always been a question for me. I was a Bible teacher for a number of years, and we always had burdens for our students. And it's always like we teach them the same thing. But some inevitably chooses to leave and others stay. And why is that? And as I've been staying all weekend, I'm not, I don't have all the answers. I have a lot more questions than answers. And in fact, I think by the end of our time together this afternoon, you'll probably have more questions than answers too. But hopefully we have a few pointers from Scripture to direct our thinking for further meditation and reflection on our own experience. But that's, that's where my question began. And in the course of my study, I ended up not exactly where I thought I was going to end up. And this is sort of a a, a journey in progress in my study and my thinking. Uh, So I'm going to share with you, and 
hopefully we can continue to learn together as we, as we grow as Christians. But a story came to mind as I pondered this dilemma, and it's found in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be spending most of our time there. Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at the story of the prodigal son. And of course, in chapter 15, there are three stories back to back. There's the story of the lost sheep, and then the lost coin, and then the lost son. And of course, Jesus was telling these stories, parables, to illustrate the work that heaven goes through for the salvation of the lost. But it's also a description of various classes of lost individuals, if you will. There's a sheep. The sheep knows he's lost, but he doesn't know his way home. What does a shepherd do? He leaves a 99 in the fold, and he goes all night searching for that last lost sheep. And then there's the lost coin, who doesn't even know he's lost. And the woman lights the candle, sweeps the whole house to search for that one coin. But the lost son, the father doesn't chase after the son. It's a whole different scenario, different agencies at work here. But perhaps most important to me is that perhaps we focus a little too much on the prodigal son, but we have to remember that this is a story not just of one boy, but it's a story of two. The story of two sons, and not, not necessarily... It's not necessarily telling us that one is better off than the other. And we know the story well. So the setting of this story is interesting because it, this is what really led me to, to you know, investigate this story. And that is, this is exactly the scenario that we were discussing a little bit earlier. Two sons, same father, same home, same upbringing, same culture, same religion, probably at the same Sabbath school teacher. Same songs, same veggie meat, same chores at home, same everything, but two very different results, or so it seems. Two different behaviors, I should say. And so this led me to, to really try to dig into this story to see if there's something to this. If Christ himself has given us a clue to this question that we have. So, I want to spend a moment here. We're not going to go through the story verse by verse. I'm assuming that we know the story of the prodigal son. So I'm not going to belabor setting up the whole context and going through all the stages of what happened. I'm going to try, right off the bat, to try to identify the motives that fuel the actions of these two young men. I want to peel off the layers to to look into the story to see if there are clues that tell us what motivated them. What were their objectives? What did they want? What was it that drove them? Because perhaps when we unearth that lower layer of what uh, motivated them, it can help us to better understand um, how we can relate today. So let's begin in verse 11. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. This is Jesus telling the parable. He said, a certain man had two sons. So right off the bat, Christ is saying, look, this is not a story of just one boy. There are two sons here. So we don't want to neglect 
one of them. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So we're familiar with what happened with this young man. The younger son says to dad, Dad, I wish that you were dead. Because when do children receive their inheritance? It's when their parents or their father passes away. So this young man, he just very bluntly tells his father, I really rather not have anything to do with you. And so since that's the case, might as well give me my inheritance now and see you later. So we know right off the bat that this young man did not enjoy the society of his father. But what was it that he wanted? What did he desire based on the story? I mean, it's, we're, we're reading between the lines a little bit, but I think with some inductive reasoning, we can figure some of this out. I think it's fair to say that whatever this young man uh, rushed out to do sort of reveals his motives, right? You think it sort of shows what drove this young man? Would it be fair to say that he desired to pursue pleasure? Is that a fair statement, you think? And he thought that he, the only way to, to, to do those things was outside of the confines of the restrictions of the father's house. Because clearly, he's not doing those things while he's at home. So in order for me to do this, to have this lifestyle, be it the drinking, the partying, the, the, the prostitutes and gambling, whatever else we associate with, with this rich life that the prodigal son lived, he realized the only way for him to have that was to be outside of the father's home. So we're sort of in, using inductive reasoning to sort of glean some of these things, but I want something a little bit more solid. So let me share with you what Ellen White wrote in the book Christ Object Lessons. This is in page 204, paragraph 2. In his restless youth, the prodigal looked upon his father as stern and severe. I want you to notice how he perceived his father. So those who are deceived by Satan look upon God as hard and exacting. They regard him as watching to denounce and condemn, as unwilling to receive the sinner so long as there is a legal excuse for not helping him. And the next sentence is very key. His law they regard as a restriction upon men's happiness, a burdensome yoke from which they are glad to escape. So what did the young man perceive from his father? He thought his father was stern and severe and harsh and exacting, watching to denounce and to condemn. This was the, the foundation of his understanding of his father. I want you to keep this in mind. We're going to come back to that. But what I want to focus on at this moment is the next sentence, which says, he regarded the law as a restriction upon men's happiness and a burdensome yoke from which to escape. That sounds an awful lot like Lucifer's arguments in heaven, doesn't it? The prodigal son 
wanted happiness. And he saw that the restriction, he thought that the restrictions of the rules of his father's house was a barrier between him and the happiness that he was seeking. So, if I could just distill it down, what was the objective? What was the motive of this young man's life? He wanted to pursue or to obtain happiness for himself. And to him, that equated pleasure. That equated having his own way. Independence. Some of these words, I think, are synonymous with what this young man desired. And all of this was founded upon a misunderstanding on the character of God or his father. So that's the young man, the younger brother. Let's take a moment now to take a look at the older brother, shall we? Because I'm going to be doing a little bit of comparing and contrasting between the two. So we saw the objective of the younger brother. He wanted to pursue his happy life. Whatever that meant to him, it meant doing whatever he wanted. So, let's look in Luke chapter 15. Uh, We're going to skip down to verse 25. So this is, we're skipping over most of the story, you understand. The young man had left, he wasted his money, the famine had come, he's eating with pigs, he comes to himself, he runs home. The father comes to him while he's a great way off, puts his robe on him, kills a fatted calf, they're celebrating now, and this is where we pick up the story. Verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he, answering, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Notice carefully what he says next. And yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And the story continues. Uh, The father says, son, you are always with me. All I have is thine and... This, this son that I had was lost and now is found. And that's where the story ends. That's where the story ends. We don't read the conclusion of the matter with the older brother. Christ just leaves it open-ended. But I want to sort of drill a little bit deeper on, into the motives of this older brother. And for the younger son, it was, why did he leave? For the older brother, the question is, why did he stay? Verse 29, I believe, gives us the clue. He's angry, right? And of course, you begin to wonder immediately if he cared for his younger brother, which it appears as though he didn't care too much for him, why would he care that they were celebrating? I mean, it's just like the father says, shouldn't you be glad with us? But deeper than that, I want to find out why... Why was he angry? Verse 29, it says, Lo, all these years I have served you, and I have never transgressed at any time your commandment. You notice earlier the younger man, the younger son, 
thought that happiness was restricted by the law. And this older brother says, I never broke your law. But what does he say next? He says, and you never gave me a kid, meaning like a little lamb or a little goat, so that I might make merry with my friends. He's a jealous older brother, right? What is he saying here? He's saying, I never dishonored the family. I never squandered your means. I worked so hard to help move the family corporation along, and I was faithful to you, and I obeyed you, and you never gave me anything, never threw a party for me, never did anything to celebrate my faithfulness. And now this younger brother comes, and you kill from the fatted calf, and you throw a big party for him. He's jealous, right? Self-righteous, all of these things, but it begins to dawn on us that this young man was working for an ulterior motive, in a way. He wasn't working because he was a son and he loved his father. He was working in order to earn something. He thought he deserved something for all of the service he's rendered for his father. Maybe he's thinking, I'm free labor and I brought you all of this return on your investment, and I don't get anything, and this younger son is now using up the wealth that I helped you generate. What, is he going to take a part of my, my inheritance again? Let's look at Christ's object lessons again, shall we? Because we're, we're, we're sort of reading between the lines a little bit. We need a little bit more solid footing. Christ's object lessons, page 209, paragraph 3. Like the elder son in the parable, they, the Pharisees, had enjoyed special privileges from God. They claimed to be sons in God's house, but they had the spirit of the hireling. They were working not from love, but from hope of reward. And that's the key right there. The older son of the parable, just like the Pharisees, they were working out of a hope of reward. But notice the next sentence, very, very key. It says, they, in their eyes, God was an exacting taskmaster. Did you catch that? The older brother viewed the father as an exacting taskmaster. Now, is that different or is that the same as the younger brother? It's the same. And what was the motive for him to serve this, apparently in his eyes, hard and exacting father? It was in a hope of reward. So the older brother, he stayed and he labored all those years. He was faithful to his father, never ran away. Never ran away, never, never did anything to disgrace the family, never broke the family rules, never went against family tradition. He was an obedient son, and everyone in the town knew it. Oh, now that's a good, that's a good boy. He's just like his father, chip off the old block, right? He's taking on the family name and carrying it forward with honor, but in his mind, is there any difference between the older son and the younger son? The older son was working for a reward. The younger son wanted to claim his reward. 
The older son viewed the father as a hard, stern, severe taskmaster, just like the younger son did. The only difference between the older son and the younger son was one thought, that his happiness would be derived, can be attained, only by escaping the rules. Whereas the older brother thought that happiness and his reward and his pleasure will only come through keeping the rules. But both were simply after the reward. Are you following me? These two young men are not so different, is my point. Oh, but this guy, he stayed in the church. The older brother, he leads out in song service and he teaches Sabbath school. He's a leader at Advent Hope. And man, he's a good young man. At least that's what appears on the outside. But of course, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And we spend so much of our energy and our time, we're fretting for all of those prodigals that are out there. But perhaps there are those of us sitting in the church pews who are just like the older brother in need of a conversion just the same. And here's, here's where I think we have an issue in our society today. And that is this idea of what the purpose of life is. In, in, almost imperceptibly, but I think it's not that imperceptible, the message that's being promoted to us is that the pursuing of our personal, individual happiness is the highest goal in life. Isn't that the American dream? Isn't that the whole point of working hard, being honest, being a responsible, timely, reliable worker? That's the whole message of the, you know, good old days, you know, my grandfather's work ethic type of message here in America. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and you'll get somewhere in life. That's the American dream. And even, I mean, isn't that what it says in the Declaration of Independence? (laughs) The inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Happiness. That's the whole point of society, is to maximize the happiness So you want to have a comfortable retirement, you know, it's to maximize our happiness. Even for the philanthropists out there, all of these millionaire, billionaires, whatever, they're giving away all their money, and a lot of them, they do it for what reason? It's good karma, they say. What goes around, comes around. Haven't we heard this before? I read some blogs, I follow some blogs, and even their blogs about living simply, right? Like, you don't need so much stuff. Simplify your life. Spend less money. But what's the purpose? The purpose that they promote is so that you will live a happier life. 
uh, living a simpler life with less clutter and being more uh, environmentally friendly. It's to make for a happier society. And for some of these people, the goal is to make a utopia on earth if we just try hard enough. That's the message, isn't it? In society. Live your dream. Pursue your calling. Do what you love. Pursue your individual happiness. And that's the message that the prodigal son took to heart. He said, if that's the message, that's my goal in life. The way to do it is without the restrictions of my father's house. But can it be that this is the same message that's being promoted in our church? Can it be? I actually read a blog post earlier this week. You might have seen it if you're on Facebook. It's been shared around. It's called How to Raise a Pagan Kid in a Christian Home. Interesting article. And the first paragraph, the author writes this. Too many times, Christian parents have it as their goal to make their kids good and moral. Is there anything wrong with being good and moral? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is as if the entire purpose of the family's spiritual life is to shape their children into law-abiding citizens who stay out of trouble. That's a good thing, but is, is that our only goal as Christians? The only problem with this goal is that it runs in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches. The gospel is not about making bad people moral, but about making dead people alive. If we teach morality without the transforming power of the gospel and the necessity of a life fully surrendered to God's will, then we are simply raising moral pagans. You catch the message. We as Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists who keep all Ten Commandments of the law. Can it be that we say, now Johnny, Susie, you need to obey. You need to obey. You need to keep the law. You need to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Because if you don't, you're going to be punished. Or if you do, you're going to be rewarded. What are we doing? All we're doing, we're telling these young people, you need to do it to earn a reward. Let me tell you something. Daniel and his three friends, They obeyed God not for some reward. The three Hebrew boys went into the fire not expecting to be delivered, even though God did deliver them. They did what was right not because of some reward. They did it because it was the word of God. The article continues, and here he, the article or the author quotes another individual. His name is Phil Vischer, who happens to be the creator of VeggieTales. I'm not promoting VeggieTales or endorsing them, you understand, but that's who he is. This is what he writes. We are drinking a cocktail that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God, is what he says. Is this the, are we drinking the same cocktail? Do we have inadvertently in the way, and I'm not saying what we say in church, because what we say is always the right thing, right? 
but by the way we model our life, model our choices, how we are raising up our children. And in my case, when I work with my students, are we modeling that all Christianity really is is for you to be a good boy, be a good girl, listen to dad, listen to mom, go to church on Sabbath, be a good boy in Sabbath school, and then stay out of jail. Is that all? Is it just so you can someday, if you are good, earn some reward? Maybe I'm just being a little old-fashioned here. But it seems to me that was often the message I was taught. And maybe, unfortunately, the message I've been teaching in my life. Christianity is not just to make bad people do good behaviors. And the motivation is not just for them to earn some reward in some distant future. Because what happens, it, it creates prodigal sons and their older brothers. Maybe those who stay in the church because they desire some reward. We think, I better be good or Jesus won't bless me. I better be good because that's the only way I can go to heaven. I believe there is a problem with that. Are we modern day older brothers? Can it be that we are staying in the church? We go to church, we memorize scripture, we sing the hymns. We dress the part, we eat the right foods, carry out all of the proper behaviors because that's the way to fit in. That's the way to stay out of trouble. That's the way to earn some sort of reward, whatever we think that reward might be. Perhaps for some of us, it might not be the case for those here. Maybe there are some of us who we want to move out in the country. We got to get off the grid. We got to stockpile our food and learn to garden because the time of trouble is coming. And can it be that the motivation for that kind of activity is not because we're just taking God at His word and because we want to enhance our relationship with Him, but primarily out of fear of pain? Because isn't that a prize? One of the rewards that we might be receiving is just to avoid the punishment or avoid the pain. Can it be that even in doing those good things, we're motivated by the wrong thing? And in a sense, isn't this just legalism through and through? Isn't that the problem with the older brother? He was working because he wanted, he thought he deserved something. Like, I've earned this, haven't I? And he also reveals by the way that he speaks to his father that he really does not expect, or he doesn't think the father should accept his younger brother back. I mean, isn't that clear from the story? Like, look, he wasted all your money. He went and he, he spent it on prostitutes and all of this stuff. I wouldn't have him back. But that also reveals the underlying understanding of him of his view of his father. I mean, we read earlier, he saw God as a harsh taskmaster. So in other words, this man, this young man, older brother, another reason he decided to stay was simply he was afraid of being rejected. 
But it's almost as if, if I, it's almost as if he's like, if I had only known that I could have my cake and eat it too. He only wished he could have done what the younger brother did. And haven't we often marveled when we see such wholesome individuals brought up in the church and it's like one day they're up teaching Sabbath school and all of a sudden the next day they're far out in the world. It's like overnight and you wonder, how can that happen? Oh, Perhaps the answer is right here. The older brother syndrome. And I don't want to surmise too much into the story, but I just can't help but wonder if perhaps the older brother played a part in inciting the younger brother to leave. Because if we look at the modern-day prodigals, those who have chosen to walk away, how often we have heard the accusation of hypocrisy as one of the cardinal reasons for their departure. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not all into, you know, the hunting for hypocrites movement. Sure, there are hypocrites. But I think we ought to look at ourselves. And to really ask that hard question, if perhaps I've been simply living this this life of the American dream plus a little bit of Jesus, and that those who are watching on actually (laughs) sees right through that. And perhaps if we ourselves are not presenting the best witness for what Christians ought to be and what Christians ought to be motivated by. You understand my point? I'm not trying to point fingers, but introspection, I think, is necessary. And I just, my heart is broken often when young people, in particular individuals, who choose to walk away, find reason to do so because of my life, because of things that I have chosen to do or not to do. And often you hear the doubts, right? I'm not so sure. If that church is like that, I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. But before I get too carried away, I know I've been quite hard on the older brothers. I'm an older brother, literally. (laughs) And also, I believe spiritually, I relate with him a great deal. But I don't want to let the younger brothers off the hook completely. The younger brothers spiritually as brought out in the story. Because ultimately, we can't blame someone else for our own choices. In the judgment We are ultimately responsible for our own decisions, our own actions. And this reminds me of a passage right here in Steps to Christ, page 111, paragraph 1. Disguise it as it may, the real cause of doubt and skepticism in most cases, you know what the rest of it is? Is the love of sin. The teachings and restrictions of God's word are not welcome to the proud, sin-loving heart, and those who are unwilling to obey its requirements are ready to doubt its authority. So yes, we can psychoanalyze the, the prodigal son, the younger brother, all we want, but I think the spirit of prophecy was not caught unawares by the modern, postmodern, post-Christian, whatever you want to call it, 
mentality. This idea that what's right for you is right for you, but that's not right for me. This idea that all roads lead to the same destination. This idea that I can do what I want because there's no absolute truth. It's the ultimate get-out-of-sin-free card, isn't it? God was not caught unawares. And he, mentioned, he just states it here. Steps to Christ. The real cause of doubt and skepticism in most cases is simply the love of sin. The prodigal son, he loved sin. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to do the drinking and the partying and the sleeping around. He just wanted to do it. And so he looked for excuses. And that was the object of his life. Now, of course, she, Ellen White here qualifies that it's in most cases. So I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations. But my heart frequently rises up with righteous indignation. When individuals claim to be so smart and wise, to come up with sophisticated arguments and justification for their behavior, when all it is is they want an excuse to sin. Haven't you ever heard the excuse that the atheists, the agnostics, the unchurched, the secular people out there, they're, more, they're nicer and they're more loving than those cranky old Adventists. Haven't you heard that before? I mean, we shouldn't be cranky old Adventists, but unfortunately there are those who fit that category, I think. Those Buddhists I'm, I work with, they are so spiritual. Surely the Adventists can't have the truth. Surely, there is truth in all of the world's religions. These are all excuses for us to simply do what we want. Oh, it's okay to drink occasionally. Social drinking is fine. Besides, the Bible, the word for wine, it's unclear if it's fermented or unfermented, and they can't keep things totally unfermented back in those days, so it's probably alcoholic wine. It must be okay. And besides, look at that lady over there, the one with all the tattoos and the shaved head. She started a nonprofit saving starving children in Africa, and she drinks. It must be okay. You've heard these things before? In most cases, the reason for doubt and skepticism is the love of sin. The prodigal sons, I don't know if there are any of you who relate more with this young man or those who might hear this recording later. Who's the hypocrite? Honestly. Those who claim enlightened minds, a tolerant spirit, who chooses this way because it's more happy or whatever, looking down our noses on those cranky old Adventists. Perhaps we're not really that different after all. Often the most sophisticated arguments are used to cover up the simplest of problems. 
and the oldest of problems, and that is that we love sin. So that's my little little aside, if you will, on the younger brothers. But what about us today? What's the real takeaway of this message? The question really is, is this our problem? What are our goals as Christians? We looked at the younger son, we looked at the older son. We recognize there are some problems there, but what about us? What is this objective that we are placing before ourselves and our children as the purpose for the Christian life? Are we teaching that worldly happiness and prosperity and and a painless, secure, independent, comfortable life is the ultimate goal? Or maybe even we're just telling young people, you know, you got to obey. You just have to live right and keep your nose clean and do the right thing or else you won't be saved. Is that the message? Or is there more to this? Is this just the American dream plus a little bit of Jesus? Is this just the message of be good so that you can be saved someday? Is that just the message? Because maybe that's why we are so impressed when we look at the worldly people doing all of this good stuff, giving away billions of dollars, saving lives, and coming up with, you know, mechanisms to empower entire nations and entire races of people. We're so impressed by that. We think, yes! But isn't there more to the Christian life than that? So what kind of Christians are we supposed to be producing? What kind of Christians ought we to be? Christians like Moses. Christians like Paul. Who are willing to say, Lord, if it, if it means the destruction of these people, blot me out of the book of life. For my kinsman's sake, let me be accursed from Christ. That is not the, the voice of an individual who is pursuing a sanctified version of the American dream. That's the voice of an individual who has been consumed with the image of Jesus Christ, who has an earnest, sincere desire to be like Him. What kind of Christians ought our churches and our homes be producing Christians like Jacob, who are willing to cling to the angel even when it looks like this is the end and there's no hope for him? That's not the type of Christian that we see today that just tries to be good to stay out of trouble. There's a deeper motivation for why they live the Christian life. It's not just being good and moral, but it's being Christ-like. And when we're Christ-like, the good and the moral It's just a part of the package. And you know, some of us, you know, we talk about being the last generation of God's faithful people before He comes, right? We talk about that. And it's almost like we have this 
swell in our chest. We sort of have a little older brother-like swagger. I know the story of the great controversy. I know the sanctuary message. It's almost as though inadvertently we get this mindset like, yeah, see, I'm better than you. That's the older brother speaking. That's the older brother in our hearts. So how do we get to that point? How do we move from where we are now to that point where Moses and Paul and, and Jacob, where Christ was? How do we become where we are now to how he is? I think it begins by coming to the same realization that that younger brother realized. That all of us are covered in filthy rags with a stench of pigs on us, feasting on the husks, with nothing to offer God. And realizing that the only thing we can do is to go home and to fall completely broken, contrite, at the feet of Jesus. And as we recognize that the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost, that through the mercies of God we can be made new. And as we view the cross of Christ lifted up for us, and that we have done nothing to deserve it and can never do anything to earn it, when we see that and when we recognize that the Father has met us a long way up, and that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, when we truly recognize that in the depths of our soul and the love for Christ in in reciprocation swells up from within, then the desire will no longer be, Lord, what do I get? (laughs) But Lord, how can I be like you? When that moment comes, and I pray that the Lord may move me quickly from where I am to that ideal, then the older brother can learn to rejoice with his father. The younger son would have been brought back into communion in the father's house. That's the experience I want, don't you? Like I said earlier, probably you have more questions and answers after this study. I know I do. But the one thing I realize is that there needs to be more of Christ and less of myself. He must increase. I must decrease. And by His grace and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, I pray that I might become like Moses and Paul and Jacob and Christ, having the faith of Jesus, having the love for lost souls like he did, having the the mind of Christ so transformed that I'm not simply in it for some self-interest, but that that I would remain faithful to Christ, that I would be a Christian even if there was no heaven, even if there was no hell, even if there was no reward, that I would still choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's my desire. How about you? Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, this afternoon as we have thought hard about this story of the prodigal son and his brother, Lord, how we see ourselves reflected in the experience of these two young men. Lord, we have many questions. We are unsure of ourselves. And truly, we have nothing to offer you. And Lord, we pray that we might not serve you out of a self-serving motive. Not simply for some gain, some reward. But that we might become like you and genuinely desire that Christ-likeness. Teach us, Lord, every day. Guide our decisions. Help us to order our footsteps that we might follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That one day we might be truly like him, reflecting his image to the world. We know this is in accordance to your will. And so we thank you for hearing this prayer and answering it in your time. So lead us and take us from this place. And also, Lord, we thank you for the Sabbath that is now closing. Guide us in the new work week that we might be connected with you and that we might be prepared for the Sabbath that's coming in another seven days. May your presence tarry with us. Go with us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.